what we had started to do was we created some formative assessments for the entire grade level. So if I was working with first grade teachers, everyone was giving the same formative assessments and we got together and we switched papers and no teacher was allowed to grade their own students' papers. And then we looked at that data to see where the students were. I think that was Today we to speak do. with Nancy from St. Louis, Missouri. Nancy is a math specialist at her school and is frustrated with an ineffective model that is in place to support students in need. You'll hear how she wants to help plan a better way to help students she works with. And together we help her realize what she can influence and how she can proceed to help make these changes. This is another Math Mentoring Moment episode where we talk with a member of the Math Moment Maker community, a person just like you, who is working through struggles and together we brainstorm possible next steps and strategies to overcome them. And you're just going to listen in on this conversation. So, Kyle, let's get into it. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce from TapIntoTeenMinds.com. And I'm John Orr from MrOrIsAGeek.com. We are two math teachers who, together, with you, the community of math moment makers worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark curiosity, fuel sense-making, and ignite your teacher moves. Let's get ready for this jam-packed episode, Uh, but uh, like we've been doing lately, we want to say thank you. Thank you to all of you Math Mobile makers out there who have taken the time to share feedback by leaving us ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Yes, this week we want to highlight Phil Stringer, who gave us a five-star rating and review that said, Must listen to math podcasts. John and Kyle have created a podcast in which they explore contemporary issues in math education. Brilliant conversations with math educators from around the world. Wow, we can't thank Phil enough for taking the time out of his busy day to not only listen, but to help us grow the podcast with these positive ratings and reviews. If you haven't taken a moment to go and give us an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts, we would certainly appreciate it. Yes, and because Phil shared a screenshot of his review on social media, this math moment maker has been entered into our rating and review contest for one of five copies of Peter Lildahl's new book, Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics Grades K through 12. Right, 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 Kyle. Here are the details on how you can enter and hopefully win. Step one is head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. If uh, Apple Podcasts is not your listening service, hopefully you can find how to rate and review us on yours and we'll take that one too. Kyle, what's step two? Step two is to take a screenshot of your review and share it on Twitter or Instagram, mentioning at Make Math Moments or in our free private Facebook group, Math Moment Makers K through 12. Step three is, and this is the last step, is on that post, be sure to use the hashtag 
MMM giveaway as that will help us search and find your review. And that is it, my friends. You are in. And uh, right now, there are only a handful of ratings. I believe we're at about 13 Mm. since we started this contest and this episode is being recorded. About 13. So, like, you got just under a 50% chance of winning one of those five books as it stands now. Holy smokes. You know your chances are really high. So stick around, make sure you get that review in and you'll land one of those books from Peter. If you don't know who Peter is, listen up to episode 21 and 98, two of our most popular episodes, and you'll land Mm -hmm. his brand new book, Building Thinking Classrooms. Yeah, we'll be giving away five copies of that awesome book. Uh, But to get in on this rating and review giveaway, you just need to get that rating and review in by December 31st. 2020. Now, if you are listening after December 31st, 2020, go ahead and leave a rating and review anyway. Follow the same process. And uh, we do plan to have another contest in the future. So we will accept your rating and review if it's left after December 31st for the next giveaway. All right. Now let's get on to our discussion with Nancy. Hey there, Nancy. Thanks so much for joining us here on the Make Math Moments That Matter podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. It's actually gorgeous here. I'm going to enjoy the weather today. Awesome. I love hearing about gorgeous weather. It always just brings a smile to my face. Nancy, tell us a little bit about yourself. We'd love to get a backstory on teachers and their education journey. How long have you been teaching? What grade level do you teach? And how did you kind of just stumble into teaching kids? Okay, so I had a pretty much of a rocky start. I always knew that I wanted to be a teacher from the time that I was five years old. I stumbled a little bit because my older brother became a doctor and I felt that I needed to live up to that. So I went into college and started out as a bio major and then had to dissect a frog and said, oh, no, I can't do this. And I said, oh, if I'm not going to be a doctor, I'm going to be a lawyer. So I started taking a lot of political science courses. And it took me five years to graduate from college. And I'd say in about year three, I was like, what am I doing to myself? Let me go back to the thing that I always wanted to do. And I didn't have a lot of family support. They kept trying to tell me to stick with either being a doctor or a lawyer, but I stuck to my guns. And so I went through and did some education classes, graduated, and then started to do my student teaching. And I was doing my student teaching in a pretty rough neighborhood. And towards the end of my student teaching, a teacher had to leave because her husband was very sick. So I went to the principal and asked him if he would consider hiring me for the position And he did. He took a chance on me. And I ended up being a fifth grade teacher for the last four months. And then they kept me on the following year. So in that school, I was there for about three years. And then I just wasn't happy there. There was not a lot of parent support. The kids were struggling. When I taught fifth grade, I had a range of kids reading from kindergarten to 12th grade. My last year in that building, I had 35 students in my class, and it just was not getting any better. So I went to a job fair, 
And at the time, my district was very involved. I had brought in Columbia Reading and Writing to my district. So I got really good at teaching reading and writing. And I went to a job fair and I ended up being hired by my new district. So I've been in this district now for 20 years. I started off there being a third grade teacher and I was fifth grade for a little bit. And then you talked about a defining math moment. Can I talk about that now? Yeah, we were about to ask next because I'm very interested to see based on that storyline that you've given us so far. So yeah, have at it right now. Yeah, so I was a hotshot at teaching, reading, and writing. You know, math was not even a second thought for me. I knew I had to teach math, but it really wasn't something I was invested in. And I was a type of math teacher who taught math from a textbook page by page. But I started to become really bored with it. And I was like, there has to be another way. Reading and writing can't be this rich. And then math is this dull subject that I'm just going page by page. The kids are like falling asleep at their desks. There's more to the story. Yeah. Yeah. That very same year, a teacher was hired who had traveled around the United States. And I just happened to be walking by her classroom one day and I heard her using the richest math language. And I was like, wow. I want to teach like that. So I stood by her door and I just watched her teach. She invited me in. And from that moment on, we developed a friendship and she became my mentor. And we met on our preps and we planned together. She encouraged me to come in and observe her. When we gave assessments, we sat down and graded them together. And we would talk about how her kids always managed to do better on the assessments than my kids did. And What it came down to was that I wasn't doing enough formative assessment and pulling small group work. So I got really good at teaching math. And this teacher ended up leaving to go to another district that paid her better. But I continued my work and I got very smart at math. And the principal at the time, who was herself a math guru, gave me books. So I just started beating voraciously anything that I could get my hands on. And at a point, she said to me, I'm taking you out of the classroom and I'm going to make you a math coach. And we developed a model for our building that involved me pushing in to teachers' classrooms every day. So I started in first grade and I pushed in every day to five teachers' rooms and planned with them. And other schools from the district started coming to visit and see what I was doing. And I was a math coach in the district for about six years. Now, this is where the story gets a little rocky. Okay, yeah, I was going to say, I'm like, that sounds awesome. (laughs) It was awesome. I really had a great time doing what I was doing. The district expanded the model, and they hired a math coach for the other three elementary schools in the district. So now I had a team, and it was going great. I don't quite know how this happened, but the director of ELA got put in charge of the math program. So she does not know a lot about math, but she became the head of the math coaches. She decided to change the model. She made instructional coaches that became coaches of everything. I had a new principal at the time who said, I want you to apply for the job. But I had already been told by this woman that I want you to be a math specialist. So I didn't do it. And what I said to my principal at the time was also a very supportive person, the math guru. I said to him, I can't take on the role of an instructional coach 
when I have only been focusing on math for the last six years. If I'm going to take on a role as a leader in the district of reading, writing, social studies, science, and math, I need to be at the forefront of that. I can't be on a learning curve hoping to lead teachers along with me because then I lose my credibility. And I really believe that and I stuck to that. So my role changed and I became a math specialist. And basically what that meant was I would have a math lab. So when the program started, it was first, second, and third grade coming to the math lab, whole class with the teacher. And then based on what I saw through a formative assessment that I gave before they came to the lab and based on what I see when they're in the lab, then I also pull small groups for remediation. Every year, we added on a grade level. So we started with first, second, and third. Then it became first, second, third, fourth. Then it became kindergarten through fourth. And now it's kindergarten through fifth. The job is exhausting. I don't feel like I'm filling any gaps. There are times that I'm pulling groups of 12 kids from one class. Now, the school that I was in, and because I was accountable for K to five, meant that I had to, and I was one person in the building, I had to combine classes. So there were times that I had 16 kids in front of me for small group work where there were gaps that needed to be filled. So there started my frustration. So pulling small groups of classes, essentially, instead of small groups, small groups, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And also sounds like you're now, instead of coaching teachers on helping the students, it sounds like you're more of a resource teacher where you're pulling these small groups or large groups of students. And then I guess, like you said, filling gaps on those kids and then sending them back to class. Right. And the reasoning behind the model was that the teachers were coming to the math lab and I was essentially still a coach because the teacher was seeing me modeling the best math practices, right? So in theory, it sounds really good. However, I can't tell you how many teachers came and they were on their cell phones. I was just going to cut in, sorry there, Nancy, just from that one sentence, it sounds like the teachers were treating you as like- Coverage. Yeah, those kids are out of my class. I got a smaller group to work with. And then your job is to handle that. And I got a break. Yeah. Yeah. Not everyone. There were some teachers that were invested in this and came to learn, but it wasn't the majority of them. So the theory behind what I'm doing sounds great. But in practice, the teachers do not have the content knowledge. So for this to work, the teachers have to say, okay, I'm going to take back what I saw you do today and do some of this in my classroom, but there's no accountability built in. That's not happening. You know, the content knowledge is lacking in a lot of them. The math language is not there. The small group work that they should be doing isn't there. So it's this cycle of the kids have, there's so many gaps to be filled and the pieces that need to be in place are not in place. So I'll just say a couple more sentences. So in order for this model to work also, I need to be able to meet with the teachers and say, okay, here's what happened in math lab today. Let's talk about what we both saw. Here's what I saw Johnny and Christine and Rachel doing. Here's some next steps that I think could help the three of them. Why don't you pull them in a small group? Do this with them. That meeting time never happens because my schedule is jam-packed with teaching. I'm always teaching a lab or pulling groups to remediate. 
So that's where my frustration is. You've sort of painted us a really clear picture of kind of like a journey and how clearly you're very committed. You were committed in both reading and writing, and then you kind of shifted your focus to math. I feel like you sort of held your ground on this idea that since you had been focusing in math, you wanted to actually continue that focus. You didn't want to be a all subject specialist because we all know that that's a very difficult role to fill, especially if you want to go beyond pedagogical moves and into content knowledge. It's very difficult to be a content expert in all sorts of subjects. So that's something I'm hearing loud and clear. And I am like you, I said to my district, the same wording, I said, if I am focused on anything other than math, then I would like to go back to the classroom. So I feel like we align on that front. Now, it sounds to me like you're in a scenario where you know, if I reiterate, you're very busy between teaching labs, between now pulling small group. It's sort of like you're wearing maybe more hats than is reasonable. Not that you personally can't do it, but people in general can't do it. And it sounds to me like one of your biggest struggles is actually the model that is being used. Would that be fair to say? Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here, and I've got just a quick message specifically for our district-level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district-level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12, setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. I would say, and the story continues, let me just add a couple more things to this. So this building that I was in, that I was a math coach in, the instructional coach that was hired did not have any math knowledge. So people kept coming to me to be the coach, and I couldn't play that dual role. So my frustration was building. So while in this process, another building principal loved the work that I was doing and asked me to come to her building instead. And just to focus on kindergarten first and second, because that elementary school is a lot bigger, and they needed two math specialists in that building. So I jumped to this other building. So that's where I am now. I am just managing K-1 and 2. The same things are happening, however, because it's the same model that's in place district-wide. However, this building has a 50% free and reduced lunch rate. There's a lot of ENL students. There's a lack of true parent support. And I'm not blaming the parents for that. There's a lot of issues involved here because these are parents that have to work sometimes two or three jobs to put food on the table. So there are a lot of gaps to be filled in this school. And that's where I am now. 
I think you're in a situation that many teachers are in. There's a lot of listeners of the podcast right now are probably nodding their heads that, yes, I'm also in a system that I can't change, or this is the way this model works on this initiative. And they're wishing that maybe I could change it, or I wish it would operate differently. And I think there's a lot of us in there. And I've been in that situation too, where I thought the program was going to go this way, but it didn't. And now you're in it. And you're in this kind of like, sometimes we refer to them as spheres. Like there's a sphere of influence. Like you have a sphere of influence and like what you can influence, like who can you influence and help see. And there's also like a sphere of concern. There's a sphere where you can't actually influence them or change anything in this sphere, but you're worried about it. You're concerned about it. And a lot of systems are like that, where we're in it and we're concerned that this system is the way it is, but we actually can't change it or influence it in our own sphere, our own power. You know, there's lots of different things like you can't change the neighborhood, but you can influence the people that you have with you. So there's like things to consider because I think we're all in situations kind of like that. And we tend to try to like think, well, okay, I'm in the sphere of concern, but I want to actually stay in my sphere of influence. Like, what can I do to influence things that I want to see change in or modifications? Or what can I do to like make my situation better? And so I'm wondering, like right now, it sounds like you're in a situation like that where you can't actually change the model of this professional development for teachers, but also for kids and helping those kids. But You used to be. And so I'm wondering, like right now, Nancy, what are you currently doing to help address these issues that you have? Like what strategies have you kind of tried to kind of mitigate this issue of teachers just taking advantage of this situation and not getting the help they need and administrators kind of perpetuating all of this? Like what maybe some small things that you've done so far that we can hear about and then we can kind of hash out what you could do next? So a little bit more background. I am a part of a team. So there are six math specialists in the district. We all bring our concerns because we are afforded a meeting time, one time a week, half a day to get together and plan the labs that we do and to talk about the gaps that we're seeing in students and we bring our concerns. But a part of what I have done is brought this to the group. The hard part with that is that there are members in the team that do believe in the model. See, the frustrating piece with this is that there are so many systems in place that are thwarting this changing. So the principal that I had in my last building was also a math guru that did not believe in this model. And I could have the conversations with, this is what needs to happen. And he was in total agreement. However, the director in charge of making the decisions does not want to hear what we're saying. The new building that I am in, this new principal is not a true math guru, but also doesn't believe in the model. And when I have conversations with her, she is in total agreement on what needs to happen. But again, the director and the person involved is the one making the decisions about the way the model should be. There are times... So, okay, let me back up a little bit. I think it was four years ago, I started to have a conversation with her and I basically asked her the why. I said, why are we doing this? I really didn't get an answer that was satisfactory. And I also asked, what was the five-year plan? 
because that's how my brain works. I need to see it laid out for me. So what do you envision this program looking like in five years? What are the steps we're going to take to make it happen? And I was basically told that's none of my business and not something that I need to be concerned about. Right. Now I'm wondering, so I'm going to flip the question on you. Like if you were that person, what would that look like to you? What in five years would the program look like in your mind? In my mind, there would be more math specialists and I would be able to pull smaller groups. So my program would look like be pulling, be doing the math labs, be pulling small groups of students, but I also have maybe five periods a week that I'm meeting with teachers. I am holding PD sessions based on patterns and trends that I'm seeing. And I'm pushing into classrooms in addition to pulling kids out. And there is some type of process going on where I am tracking, and I don't mean tracking in the negative connotation of tracking, but I'm taking specific anecdotal notes on students and looking at data with teachers and saying, oh, wow, this is where John was six months ago, but wow, look at where he is now. So both myself and the teacher were having these conversations about those kids that need our help in getting to the levels that they need to be at to be successful. So that's my model. And that's awesome. So I think one of the key pieces is having a model in your own mind, because if we're trying to shift someone's thinking or shift a structure or a model is being able to help paint a picture of what could be, right? So it's like, here's what is now. Here are some of the challenges. Here's some of the pros too. We don't want to downplay that it's all bad because I'm sure there's some pros. So kind of weighing those out and then flipping to the other. Before I go on, I've got kind of a story that I think connects to your situation. My curiosity though, is when you're talking about actually trying to track students and where they are along their journey. I'm curious, what sort of resource or trajectory are you using in order to take that and make those assessment notes and take those notes to essentially determine what the next steps are for both you, the teacher, and for the student in the small group? And it's funny that you ask that because that's a conversation I've tried to bring to the team and the group and to my director that what is the rubric that we're looking at to assess these kids? So we have summative assessments that the students are taking, and I don't buy into the summative assessments. So when you think about questions on an assessment, you know, you need to have a range of level one through level four questions. So just a little bit of a background, I do believe in productive struggle, and I do believe that kids need to have some level four questions on a test. And that's how you really see who your shining stars are. Summative assessments have a lot of level one and level two questions. And so the summative assessments are dummy down. So I don't think those summative assessments are an accurate measure of where our students really are. In addition to that, Teachers are encouraged to give formative assessments, but there is no, okay, there's a lot here. So my principal from my old building, the woman that was a math guru, what we had started to do was we created some formative assessments for the entire grade level. So if I was working with first grade teachers, everyone was giving the same formative assessments and we got together and we switched papers 
and no teacher was allowed to grade their own students' papers. And then we looked at that data to see where the students were. I think that was a great thing to do, not encouraged to continue, and it's not what's going on now. So teachers pretty much make willy-nilly decisions about where their students are. We do use Ames Web, and we do look at RTI data, but there's not enough conversation that goes into that, and there's no accountability for next steps. Now, would you argue that maybe some of these assessments that have been used in the past and I guess currently, like, are they kind of geared towards just preparing students for standardized testing, like very procedural in nature? Yes, absolutely. Because I believe that math should be taught from a problem solving approach. And that's not what's happening. Right. Okay. So I'm kind of sensing that from the conversation. It sounds like kind of fundamentally, we've got a bit of a structure issue here. The structure, I'm going to just go out and say that I'm sort of picturing that like you're being a instructional coach using essentially kind of stuck in a model where it's like lab classes are great if there's opportunities to be able to pre-plan with the teacher, do the lab class and have them like as a co-teacher not sitting down and just kind of observing because a lot of times they miss just like students in our class. If we're just modeling for students all the time and we're not actually allowing them to do the work, some kids heard exactly what you wanted them to and others don't. And I think with teaching, especially the teachers that probably need the support the most, they're not picking up what we're throwing down when we're just modeling for them. So like I see that as the challenge here, but also you're sort of being asked to also wear this other completely different hat where they're like, and we also want you to help these students over here who are struggling. And I'm going to make a bit of a leap here, a bit of assumption, but it sounds like they're like, listen, these students over here are, are not able to jump through the procedural hoops, fix that over here. And I'm worried about the only way that could kind of happen if we're only in this procedural world is that through repetition, through constantly taking the rigor out of the problems And like you had kind of insinuated that a little bit as well, but I'm worried that regardless, we could do this all day long. Students who are struggling, if they're not actually having help to help them with the conceptual understanding they require in order to get to the next place, we're just spitting our tires. So I'm sensing your frustration. I'm kind of feeling it for you because I feel like this model that you're sharing, there's a lot of issues with it from even a research perspective. Also, I'm worried about access and equity here as well. I'm going to guess who's being pulled in these small groups. And it's not the type of small group instruction or with the intentionality that John or I or others in the math moment maker community would sort of be advocating for. So we totally are feeling you here. I guess my wonder is, can you help us and paint us a picture? So you're saying like you've given us an idea of what that may look like. If you could speak to your supervisor and your supervisor said, hey, listen, I agree with you. And maybe they don't. But let's say they do. We get them to this point where you're advocating for change. How are we going to address those things? Now, obviously, we could say more coaches, but we have to also keep in mind that funding is always a huge concern, regardless of where we are. So how do we make positive changes? Let's pretend the budget has to stay exactly the same. Because I always give the best case scenario, but then I also give the, all right, same budget scenario, because the reality is, is oftentimes budgets are going down, not going up. 
So kind of having kind of two tiers. So let's pretend that it's the same budget and we're looking to massage the current model into something that's more effective. And then also, how do I bring on my teammates? Because if my teammates think the current model is effective, I need to understand why they think that. And you sort of insinuated why you might think so. But I wonder if like maybe an even more tough conversation or a crucial conversation has to happen to better understand each other. So they understand where you're coming from and you also understand where they're coming from because maybe there's something that you're not seeing that maybe they're seeing or at least is a different perspective. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I like that. So I know I've painted a totally negative picture of this, but what I can tell you is one of the big positives that I see is that I have kids that love math now. When they come to the math lab, they leave feeling good about themselves. So one of the things that I do pat myself on the back about is that I do believe for a lot of kids, there is a fear of math and they do believe I can, I can, I can't. And when they come into the lab, I show them that they can, that it's up to me to find that zone where they're at and teach them where they're at and back up to where they can be successful and make them be successful at something. So I'm able to do that for them, not to the extent that I would like it to happen. I don't see myself making the changes in their achievement gap, but in their feelings about math, I feel empowered about that. So I think for the most part, the group feels the same way that I do about that piece of it, that we are making kids love math. And I'll just say one other quick thing. You asked me about the perfect model. Another thing that I would like to add to that are conversations with the instructional coaches. Because right now, the instructional coaches are kind of running the curriculum in the district. And teachers are handed a day-to-day plan. Day one, do this. Day two, do this. So our work is not in sync. So we do need meetings with the instructional coaches to try to somehow, I guess, but see, there's a part of that that's not my job. Like, it's not my job to convince the instructional coaches the right way that math should be taught. Hey there, Math Moment Makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like, I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, Do us this huge solid. Uh, We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. Now, I'm wondering, just to be clear, so are you working with, when you do your labs, I just wanted to make sure that I'm clear. The kids come in, you're saying one of the things you guys are doing well is making kids love math or like math more than they used to. You're modeling lessons in that lab and the teachers are there and they're sometimes are, are paying attention, sometimes they're not. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And so at no time are you sitting down with that teacher no. independently and going, hey, what does your lesson no. look like? You're saying that's what the instructional coach's job is. Right. So there are times that, you know, when the teacher's leaving the lab, if I have a prep right after, I'm following the teacher down the hallway to say, oh, here's what I saw. Here's what you could do. So I'm trying to fit those things in, but there's no set 
meeting time now. Right. And so you're not meeting with the instructional coaches. Is that correct? Right. We are not meeting with them. Right. And so in your perfect world, if you could influence the instructional coaches to start thinking in a different way, then you're in sync with them. They're going to be in sync with the teacher. And this might be a way for this to start flowing. Is that safe to assume? Right. Yes. And I have had conversations with the instructional coach who I loved. She ended up going back to the classroom this year because she got frustrated with the model. You know, I encourage her to come into the math lab to see what I was doing. And that when I figured we could form this relationship and when she saw what I was doing and saw the kids that needed help, then she could push into the classroom and support the teacher and the students. But again, their schedule is so jam-packed. They're in charge of writing the curriculum for the district in every subject. And their job is not really a coach. They're not coaching teachers right now. They hold PD sessions and then they write curriculum. I think that's a very common struggle in many districts. I know even in our district, we do not have enough human capital to do the best job or the ideal job. So I'm sure many are nodding their heads with you saying like, yeah, this is a common struggle. And we're so happy to have you here to chat through this. A few things are popping into my mind, and and it sounds like there's an alignment issue here, or alignment challenge going on, whether it even just be at a school level, but also like a district level as well. And this is really tough as districts get larger, like my district has over 70 schools, and we definitely have an alignment issue from the perspective that it's just so large. And we do our best. We try. We keep coming back to trying to make that better. But it sounds like, yeah, like trying to get in sync is something that we want to be thinking about in order to make this better. And I think the other piece, too, is, again, coming at this challenge with a coaching lens. So, for example, I'm thinking in my mind as a coach, when I'm working with educators, just like we're doing on this call, like we're trying our best. I'm saying best because it's not always perfect. We're not experts at this, but we try to come at it from a curiosity perspective. So we follow a book called The Coaching Habit. We use that as a guide in order to keep, he says, stay curious longer so that we're not just coming in and giving the answers because Answer giving, advice giving is something that immediately humans get turned off by, right? They get their fight or flight going. And you'll see this with educators. Like, for example, if an instructional coach comes into a class and says, okay, here's what you need to do. It's this, this, and this. And it seems like, well, it's all research-based. Like, it seems reasonable that why shouldn't I just say that? But right away, the teacher gets concerned, right? They either get scared, they feel like they're not a good teacher, they feel like they're being told what to do. I think the same approach will really need to happen here where trying to find, I heard John say it earlier, like, how do you influence this scenario? But influence doesn't mean telling or it doesn't mean giving the advice. It's about trying to bring to that forefront and trying to bring the challenge to the surface for other people to kind of have their own epiphany. Like, how do you help your supervisor to kind of have the epiphany that you've already had? And that's really hard for us as humans, because in our minds, we're sort of saying, like, how does nobody else see what I see? Right? Like, you've got your perspective on this. And it sounds very clear to me that you've got 
a clear understanding as to why things are not working as optimally or as effectively as you'd like to see them. But the challenge is, is that many other people may not have that same viewpoint. So how do I help them get to your realization without telling them this is how it has to be? Because right away, that sort of throws up some barriers. And I want to kind of switch to some ideas and generating some ideas for you to think about before we wrap up this call. But something that really hit me. I don't know which book it was, John, but I know you and I read a lot of the same ones, right? Like you'll read one, then he flips it to me and I do the same. I don't know if it is the book Influence, but there are a couple books around. It might be Switch. One of those books out there about influencing people and helping them come around to see your viewpoint really had me thinking. And when I was struggling in my own district, we were struggling with funding because we didn't have enough funding to use an effective model. But then what happened in our district was we were also tending to send our coaches, our math coaches, to the schools that were the lowest performing over the past five years on the standardized test. Now, right away, the red flag that we run into here is that, first of all, research doesn't support it. Right. So it's not helpful to send an instructional coach to the school that's performing the poorest on a standardized test because immediately what that says is, oh, so these teachers aren't good. Right. So that's not helpful. But then also it's oftentimes it's many other issues going on, socioeconomic issues, access and equity issues, even systemic racism issues. Like there's so many things going on there. That is not the model we want. And then oftentimes these coaches were coming in for these, we'll call them like in and out sessions, which sounds similar to kind of what's happening in your scenario. So when I tried to get our district thinking differently about it, I didn't come in and say, this needs to change because of this, 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 this. I did present a case as to why I was concerned. So I went to the research I went to some of the common struggles, which would be some of the ones that you're sharing with us in this call. But then the part that is the hardest work, if we want to actually influence some change, was actually taking that vision of like how I would love to see it and making a plan that made it easily implementable. Now, that's the hardest part here because one of the biggest challenges would be, okay, I go to my, you know, if I'm a teacher and I want to see something change in my school, I go to my principal or if I'm a coach, it might be the superintendent. We go to them and we say why something isn't working. But if we walk out the door, now we've put that problem in their lap and they're thinking, I don't know a better way. Like this is the way I came up with. So I first have to think about how do I navigate this without insulting anyone? Because if that person came up with this, I'm guessing they probably thought long and hard about this model. And in their mind, it made perfect sense. So it's about like approaching it from like a massage standpoint. Like how do I massage this model without making someone feel as though they're being targeted as ineffective or their ideas aren't valued, but taking that and trying to help them see and have that epiphany of why some change might happen. And then painting them, helping to paint them a clear picture of what that looks like, how it affects them financially, but then also, and probably even more importantly, is like how we can ensure that we can make this structure work without too much chaos being added to their plate. So for example, like something that is really difficult in a district is like, you come up with a plan, you're like, this would be amazing. Everyone's like, yes, this is an amazing plan. You're like, but we're going to have to change all the bus schedules across the district. 
right? Like right away, that's like a, ooh, lots of work, way too hard. So the more work and the more thinking that you could take off of the decision maker's plate and help them to see your side and to see what that could look like and painting them that clear picture, I think will at least get that ball rolling in that direction. And it takes a lot of time as well. So it requires a lot of patience. Uh, It requires a lot of dedication and thought and reflection, which to me, based on what you've shared with me, I don't think you're scared of either of those things. So I feel like you've got these ideas there and maybe you have to pick like, what's the easiest one that's going to generate the greatest effect in the short term and then slowly work your way up to some of the bigger changes. So I'm going to pause there. I just want to kind of get your perspective on that and your thinking and we can go from there and kind of see like what might be some next steps or maybe takeaways for you to think about. And then we would love to follow up down the road as well, because this is a problem that I'm guessing almost every person listening to this podcast is probably shaking their head saying, I have a similar issue in my school or my district. And I'm sure that this conversation is helping them think it through. Well, I love what you said. And I was taking notes while you were talking. So I I love the idea of presenting the case about why I'm concerned and taking the plan and making it implementable and painting it as clear as possible. I doubt my ability to do it, though, because I don't know the whole financial district picture. And that would have to be a part of the plan for me to show, you know, them how it's doable. I don't even begin to know how to get that information. Right. I see where you're coming from here. And I think you might not have to worry about that part of the plan. Like, I don't think you want to take on the whole, I don't think that's what Kyle is saying in the sense where you want to take on a whole redesign of everything. I think he's suggesting is thinking about maybe a small step. If you're thinking about what you want to achieve here, like in your role, like thinking about what is the best bang for your buck, like if you could make one small change right now, what would that look like? for better success with your students, more alignment. I think that's the real issue here right now is more alignment between you, the teacher, and the instructional coach. Maybe the next step is putting the bug in your supervisor's ear that we should have a meeting about this, or we all go to some sort of professional development or get professional development. That suggestion does increase the budget, which is kind of going against what Kyle was suggesting. But I think it's like, what is one small thing that you could do to help paint the picture for the person who is going to make the decision, but not put the problem on them? Right. Like that was my big piece there, John, is like, if you want a sure way to not have any change or even any consideration of change is to take an issue and go to the supervisor in a sort of, we'll call it in like a complaint sort of approach where it's like, this isn't working. I'm telling you about it. And now I want you to deal with it. I'm going to argue that that should be okay. Cause like, that's sort of the role they've taken on, right? When you're a leader, that's your job is to take these issues and try to work through them. But just from knowing how people are, they're going to at least push back on complaints versus taking feedback and trying to keep it productive and try to, again, make it. And like John's saying, maybe that small step, like you might have a bigger plan, 
maybe you have to sort of think of like, okay, so what is my end goal? Because if I don't have the end goal, here's the big challenge is that if I don't have like an ideal model, then I'm really playing Russian roulette, right? Like I'm hoping that they'll make a change, but the chances of them making a change that's actually in line with what you're hoping to see is really low, right? Like you're just throwing a dart at a dartboard. They might come back with a brand new model. They might've thought all summer about it. You come back and you're like, this isn't what I wanted. And they're like, but it wasn't clear to me what you did want. So getting clear yourself, I think is probably step number one. But staying flexible, right, within that, like, because chances are it's not going to turn out exactly the way you're seeing it. But how do you then help them kind of start taking, like, if let's say their needle's pointing like 180 degrees away from what your vision is, how do we help them start changing or tipping that needle? And might only go, like, now you might be out of 170, right? And it's like, how can I get them to, like, even 90 degrees, And then over time, slowly get that needle to kind of close in or hone in on something closer to what you see as being productive and valuable, but also actually implementable. Because if it is impossible or if it is really, really, really difficult, like highly improbable to happen, then we're just kind of spinning our wheels and stressing and thinking about all these things for essentially no possible payoff. So a bit of balance going on. So I'm wondering, like, if we were thinking about this conversation and you were to think of like a next step, are there any things that sort of popped into your mind as like sort of like an easy first step for you? It might not be necessarily to go to someone right away, but something that you can start doing to continue your reflecting and sort of like, I guess, planning on your next steps of how I make this slow incremental change for the better. Yeah, I have to think about what that is, you know, and again, trying to make it as small as possible because I see the five-year plan. I see the model of what I want it to be, but what's the first step to get me closer to that? That I have to think about. It's definitely not something that we're asking you to kind of come up with on the spot for sure, but at least I think we're putting the nugget in your brain that you want to think about that. And that can be that first step is whatever that step looks like for you, I think could put you on the path to making some change and all that. So maybe that's you whiteboarding some stuff out or making a mind map or sketch noting. And like Kyle said, start with the end in mind, start with where you want this to go and how can you make that first step easy? It reminds me of a book, actually there's two books that maybe you want to explore further. There's a book called Switch that we've often referenced here when it has to deal with working with people who have different mindsets within you and trying to like nicely change some of that mindset. And so they have a nice framework. And Kyle was referencing this idea of like, how do you make it easy? And that's one of the frameworks where it's called clearing the path. Like how can you clear the path for someone else to make it real easy, which kind of parallels nicely with this other book called Nudge by behavioral economist Richard Thaler, which is all about like these little suggestions that you can make about making the behavior you want really easy and making the behavior you don't want really hard. And so like, for example, this is a big book. It's not an education per se book, but one of the examples in the book was like, if you want people to stop or recycle more, maybe this one organization labeled the garbage cans differently. They had a recycle bin and a garbage can, but they were finding that most people were just throwing garbage out anyway. They weren't putting in the recycle bin. They labeled the garbage bin landfill. 
And then they relabeled the recycle bin, like just recycle bin. And that one small nudge, this is what he calls these things, actually changed the percentage of garbage that was thrown out in that one area. It was like everyone started putting in the recycle bin versus the landfill bin, which was normally just a garbage bin. So it's like a, a small little nudge on how you can kind of like one small change that can help make things easier for the people that you're working with. And I know that that's a big thing to ask, even though it sounds like it's small. So those are maybe two kind of next steps for you to explore some more learning around kind of the world that you're finding yourself in. But I'm wondering right now, as we're kind of nearing the hour that we've been chatting here, lots of big ideas here, Nancy, but I'm wondering right now in this conversation, is there some kind of big takeaway that you've had or big kind of realization or, or something that we've helped you with here so far that you could say take away and then uh, think about further? And like Kyle said, we wouldn't mind coming back and checking with you, but what might be a big takeaway today? I guess the biggest takeaway for me is, I guess it's no surprise if I say to you that most teachers are teachers because they're control freaks. So it's kind of taking a step back from that, you know, way of doing things and really thinking about this a little bit differently. So I love the suggestions of the books because I think you're right. I do have to figure out how to nice talk my way into this and make them see the vision and buy into that vision. So a friend of mine talks about the compliment sandwich all the time. And that's something that I need to work on. My personality, it's very honest and straightforward. And it's gotten me into trouble a few times. And it's something that I know that I need to work on is to not always come across, because for some people, it can be a little bit abrasive when I say exactly what I feel and mean. So it's finding a way to get my message across so that people are hearing what I'm saying. Folks who only know me from the podcast would probably think like, wow, like Kyle isn't that way. But I actually, over time, I've sort of been working on that because I am a very opinionated person. I think everyone is, and it can be really difficult. Like, so we want to get our thoughts out. And also we're looking for some affirmation, right? Like, I mean, we're thinking like, if I'm thinking this way, like, how is it that somebody else is thinking so differently than myself? So I think that those are huge takeaways. And I think those books we had mentioned, Coaching Habit earlier, that's a great one. Switch is a great one. And Something I often reflect on is like, imagine if you're thinking about politics. I know in the US, you have an election coming up in the fall. They have to sort of win and they have to figure out a way to get you to nod to what it is they're saying without them saying, this is the way things are. You have to follow my thinking. And in education, even more so, I think it's very important because it's easy for educators to kind of just shut the door and kind of do their thing, right? Like you get to kind of stay in your bubble. It's not an effective thing to do, but it is something that can happen. So I think these are huge, huge big ideas. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with us. As John mentioned, we'll reach out to you in, you know, nine to 12 months and see if you're willing to come on back and let us know how things are progressing. How are you feeling as we are about to hang up for the call? Like, how are you feeling as you move forward? Are you feeling energized? Are you feeling drained from all of the ideas? What are your emotions telling you right now after this call? Right now, I'm glad that I committed to 
doing this phone call. I feel that you guys really got me to see a different perspective on this. So I'm glad that I had the conversation and I thank you for that. We're glad that you did uh, reach out to us and uh, we're glad that we could uh, provide some sort of support, some sort of help. Like Kyle suggested, we'd love to kind of check back with you in, say, six to nine months just to kind of hear how things are going. But looking forward to reconnecting there. And uh, we want to thank you for joining us here. And uh, all the best and luck so far until we hear back from you. All right. Thank you. As always, both John and I learned so much from having these conversations with these math moment makers all over the world. But in order to ensure we hang on to this new learning, I mean, John and I, we're writing show notes. We're doing all kinds of things to help us take away and walk away with this learning to ensure it doesn't wash away like footprints in the sand. So make sure that you're doing a reflective process on your end. An excellent way could be just to reflect, create a plan for yourself and take action on something that you've learned here today. Right. You could write it down or even better share it with someone, your partner, a colleague at work, or do it inside the Mouth Maker community. That's why we're there. That's why they're there. Be uh, You could comment on the show notes page or tag them or us at Make Math Moments on social media or in our free private Facebook group. There's a whack of people in there just super eager to chat with you about math stuff. It's called Math Makers K through 12. Yes, yes. And if you're interested in joining us on an upcoming Math Mentoring Moment episode, you can, and we can dive into a big math class struggle together as a team. Apply over at makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash mentor. Show notes and links to resources as well as full transcripts that you can download can be found at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 106. Again, that's makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 106. Well, Math Moment Makers, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And high five for you too. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's, it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, and accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook. 
after completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.